Good morning, everyone. Morning. morning. This is um, the first time I've ever done this, so this is exciting for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah um, there's a lot of new people here, which is, you know, not even slightly terrifying. <laughs> um, but so for those of you who don't know me, I'm a teacher, and so it's really weird for me to talk like uninterrupted for. <laughs> for really long periods of time. I also don't normally like, <laughs> great, thanks. Uh, you cannot go to the bathroom. Um, and I also, I don't usually just stand in one place. Like I like move around the room and I'm like, probably stand by Anne because she's on her cell phone again, but I don't want to like call her out about it. But I'm, I'm not going to do that because I felt like that'd be weird. But if I start feeling like, I don't know, maybe we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Come on in. There's um, some seats over around. The, we've got a really full house today, which is also not even slightly terrifying. <laughs> so um, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And that's the first line of the passage from Corinthians that Brandy very nicely read for us. And I heard this part of the passage from Corinthians sometime when I was in college. And when I first heard it, I thought, like I do when I hear many things, I was like, oh, that's really pretty. I'm going to add it to my repertoire of things that I'll quote sometimes, um, which I do quote things sometimes. And, um, but I didn't really think about what it meant. And then last year, I heard, I don't know, somebody was talking about something. There was like speaking in tongues of angels. And I'm like, that sounds familiar. So the quote was banging around in my head again, but I couldn't remember it. So I Googled it. And I don't know if you've ever Googled a part of the Bible, but the first site that comes up is this site called Bible Hub. And it has just like 25 translations of the same passage. It's like the King James Version and the King James Version 2000 and the International Version, the New International Standard Version. And I was like, which version do I want? So I waded through the versions until I found the one that I wanted, which is the one that Brandy read. But while I was reading them, I realized that I had no idea what this passage actually meant. Like I thought it was pretty, but I never thought about what the words meant. And then I had one of those moments, you might have had them, when you hear a pop song from when you were a kid and you really listen to the lyrics for the first time, has that ever happened to you? Yeah. And you're like, oh, <laughs> that's what that means. No wonder my mother didn't want me to listen to that when I was seven. <laughs> um, those can be uncomfortable sometimes. Uh, so the translation I found that explained it in a way that actually made sense to me was if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, which is a little different, a little less poetic maybe. But I like that version. It kind of jives with my general meanness. And <laughs> I took it to mean sort of like that no matter what I say, if I'm not speaking with love, then I'm just making noise, which hopefully is not a super incorrect reading on this. <laughs> So I was reading this passage. This was happening right around the time of the shooting in Orlando last year, which is like 26 on my list of horrible things that happened in 2016. Um, it might be a different number on your list of horrible things, depending on whether your list is like chronological or alphabetical. However you make your list, I'm not here to judge your list-making skills. 
<laughs> Unless you want, you know what? That's probably a lie. I probably would. <laughs> but when this happened, everybody was posting on Facebook, you know, coming together in the community, and I wanted to post something too, because I'm a millennial, and that's how our generation, you know, has our emotions validated. And I'm Facebook friends, though, with some of the people I grew up with and with some of their parents. And um, we have some sort of discordance in our beliefs about stuff. So I didn't want to get into a fight about anything on this. So I kind of skirted the issue and I posted the Edward Markham poem. And then something like, you know, just remember, hate only breeds more hate and only love can win. It was very, you know, positive, I thought. Um, and, you know, we've said that a lot, I think. It's been a common theme, like love wins has been sort of a, something we see in our, what's the word I'm looking for with that? Rhetoric, yes. Um, but, and I, I believe that. I believe love has to win. But right now it's kind of hard to believe that. Um, and I don't think that, I think some of you might agree with that. It feels like wanting love to win and having love for others, like this passage suggests that we do, means that we have to fight all the time. You know, there's like a march every other day and an organizational whatever, we're fighting against this thing that happened and it's, it can be really exhausting. And so I thought, you know, but I still, I still believe this is important. I still believe that love has to win. So I was thinking to myself, what does it look like in this world to have love for others? where others have hate for you. And how do I do this? How can I have and maintain this love? And why is it important? Why is this a thing we should all keep trying to do? Because I think we've been trying, a lot of us, but it seems like we have to keep trying no matter how tired we are of oh, many things. So I'm gonna try to answer these questions, or then I thought I'm not really answering them questions, I'm telling you what I think about them. So. I didn't think that any of my thoughts on this were super radical or anything. I thought it was like normal, progressive kind of like, we should love each other. And that was like, I thought that that was, you know, typical. But then I read this to one of my friends to practice. And she just kept being like, but just dad, because she kept trying to like argue with me. She literally told me, she's like, you are pushing all of my buttons right now. I'm like, Really? <laughs> That's exciting. Um, <laughs> but she had some valid points, and I understand where she's coming from, but I told her to wait for the end because I thought that she would understand when I was finished. So hopefully you will also. Although feel free, like if you want to talk to me about this later, I'd love to, I like to talk a lot. Um, <laughs> so that's fine. Um, I think normally that most people, uh, when they explain something, they do what, then why, then how. But I'm gonna go backwards because I want to challenge you the same way that I challenged my friend. So I'm gonna start with how. So, how can we really have love for others? It's easier for me to love my friends and my family and you guys and people who agree with me about stuff and you like other Northwestern Wildcat fans, whatever, easy. Um, but how do I love people who disagree with me, who believe things that I hate and who may even hate me? How do I love these people? So to answer this question, I'm gonna tell you a short story about a student I once taught who for confidentiality reasons, I'm going to call Murgatroyd Smith. Um, that's like my fake student name. Every teacher has a fake student name, Murgatroyd Smith. I think it's really great. Um, so Murgatroyd had a lot of problems. Uh, he was generally one of the most annoying students I ever had. Um, and that's like a high bar. 
he would do things that wouldn't have even crossed my mind as being in the realm of possibility that some like would even think of. I mean, like, I never imagined that somebody would just take the hand sanitizer when I turned around and just like pour it all over someone's sweater. But like Murgatroyd had a better imagination than I do, so <laughs> whatever. So one day, Murgatroyd was being very Murgatroydy. You know, he showed up late. He interrupted the entire class. He didn't have a pencil, and then he asked every single person in the class for a pencil, and then when he finally got a pencil, it wasn't sharp enough, so we sharpened it for like eight years. Then he was on his phone, and he got into an argument with me about whether or not he was on his phone, and I'm like, the phone is still literally in your hand. I can see it with my eyes. Yeah, this is my life. Um, classic Murgatroyd. So I was teaching in someone else's room that year, and after class, the teacher asked me how I could be so patient with Murgatroyd. And that question surprised me for a lot of reasons. I mean, I didn't feel like I had been being particularly patient with Murgatroyd that day. So I asked the other teacher what he meant, and he said it seemed like Murgatroyd was trying so hard to annoy me that he didn't understand how I could put up with it. And in that moment, I realized that he didn't understand Murgatroyd at all. So I told him how I see Murgatroyd. And when I see Murgatroyd, I've said Murgatroyd like a lot of times now. Um, I don't see someone who's purposely trying to irritate me. You know, I see a child because that's what he is. And he's specifically a child who's probably never felt like he can be successful in school. So he thinks he's stupid. And I see someone who has a difficult home life. You know, he isn't getting the kind of attention he needs. And he has no idea how to get positive attention from adults because he's never gotten any. So he spends all day just trying to get negative attention. And he actually reminded me a lot of the younger students I had when I taught kindergarten. So I don't know how many of you guys spend time around young children, but some of them, they go through this phase where everything's like very binary. It's like this or that, like this is girl stuff and this is boy stuff, and this is either good or it's bad. There's not a lot of gray areas. And then when they make a mistake, as kids do, or break a rule, as kids do, and they know that's bad, they then get stuck in this trap of thinking that they are bad. And you have to explain to them that just because they made a bad choice doesn't make them a bad person. And based on how Murgatroyd acted, I felt like he was stuck in that binary. Like in a really deep part of him, he genuinely felt like he was bad. And I told the other teacher this, and that when I really think about Murgatroyd, he doesn't annoy me, he breaks my heart. And it occurred to me later that I was doing the same thing with Murgatroyd's behaviors that I was doing with the passage from Corinthians. I was translating them into a context so that I could understand them and understand him. And this translation is what allowed me to continue working with him for two solid years of like just never having a pencil. And like I gave him pencils. Where did they go? There has to be like a room that's just full of pencils, you know? Um, so you have to do this a lot in teaching, uh, especially in teaching what I teach. I teach special ed. And I thought, you know, if I can do this translation for my students, then I can do it for other people. And if I can see why people believe what they believe and why they act how they act, then maybe that's how I can have love for people, even people who hate me. So why should I have love? Why should I work so hard to understand people who it seems will never bother to return the courtesy? I'm looking down a lot, which I don't like. Normally, I like make eye contact with people, but I'm going to lose my place, and I typed this all out, so I'm just going to keep doing it. <laughs> like, even the off-the-cuff parts, those are typed out. Um, so, so why should I do this? Um, I'm going to step back into the context of the passage from Corinthians a little bit. 
um, this passage, which actually worked out. I didn't know this. I planned this whole thing. And then I read Corinthians. I'm like, oh, this fits with what I'm talking about. Great. Um, this passage comes from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. And Paul is writing this letter because there's problems in the Corinthian church. They're like becoming overly concerned with status. They're like suing each other. There's, you know, your classic immorality issues. Um, they've started aesthetic practices that they're using to judge each other. I'm like, ooh, you're the best spiritual person. And no, you're the best spiritual person. And in the beginning of this letter, Paul explains to the Corinthians that the reasons they're having these problems is that they have become divided. There's division in the Corinthian church. And this difficulty with division really resonated with me. So right now, whatever you may believe, and I don't want to get like political, even though I think it's pretty clear that this is kind of really political, but not technically. So um, whatever you may believe, I think it's clear we're divided. Our society is very divided. Sometimes it seems hopelessly so. And I think a lot of us in this room, we try to be inclusive. That's sort of an important thing to us. But we're also fighting for the things that we believe in, and the nature of fighting is oppositional. And the harder we fight, the more oppositional we'll become, and it becomes easier to devalue the opinions of the people who disagree with us. Because that's kind of what we're doing. No matter how we're dressing it up, what we are saying to people who are on the other side is, your beliefs are not beliefs that I want in my world. And when we devalue people's beliefs, we devalue them, even if we don't mean to. And I'm not saying that like all of us is personally going around just devaluing individual people, because I don't think that's what we're doing. But I think our rhetoric or our approach, or the way that we just kind of try to make the world the way we want it, and then hope that everybody likes it once it's there, instead of really trying to change people's beliefs, I think it can cut people out. And we cannot afford to cut out whole sections of our society. And I'm guilty of this. I mean, I go on tirades about like whole groups of people who, for the purpose of not getting political, I'm going to call Ohio State fans. <laughs> um, so really, truly, apologies to any Ohio State fans here. I've met several Ohio State fans, and at least one or two of them were like generally lovely people. One of my friends is married to an Ohio State fan, and it's fine. Um, um, but so uh, last, I'm just using his metaphor. So last spring, I was ranting to Neil about my hatred of Ohio State fans. And I was like, Ohio State fans are stupid. And Neil was like, Doran, you can't just call all Ohio State fans stupid. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I can, because I just did, and they are. It was, it was pretty childish. I mean, you know. But Neil was like, they're Ohio State fans for a reason. And those reasons might not make sense to you. And I'm like, yeah, because the reasons are stupid, just like they are. <laughs> and it was a vicious circle. I was really, I was having a bad day. But really what was happening was I couldn't see past like the haze of my own righteousness. Like I'm so right, I know it, which means they have to be wrong, which means they're dumb. Like that's how that kind of works in my brain. Um, but what I realized now is I was doing to Ohio State fans exactly what I perceived them to have done to me and resent them for. I was putting all of them in one group, saying they all had the same opinion, and then completely devaluing not only their opinions, but their right to have opinions at all. And in a system where I believe that I have the right to fight for my opinion, because everybody should have that right, then I have to let everyone have that right, no matter how much it burdens me. And if I'm going to have love for people, because I believe that I should have love for people, then that love cannot be exclusionary. And Paul actually says something pretty useful metaphor-wise on this, which also luckily really worked out for me. Didn't know it was in there. 
Um, some of you might be familiar with this part. Right before he talks about love, which is that part that Brandy read, he says something about everybody being one. He says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body and have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So if we are going to be inclusive, which I think we want to be, then we are all part of the same body and we need each other, not just the people who agree with us. And whatever world that I'm fighting for is one that is going to include everybody, even the people I don't like, and all of the parts of the body. Because if I'm fighting for a world that is inclusive, I can't win that world by being exclusive. So when the church in Corinth was experiencing factionalism, different groups of people were aligning with specific leaders who they judged to be superior to others based on external measures of spirituality. They were like, some of them were speaking in tongues. They're like, that's the best way to show that you really have, you know, you're hooked up with the spirit. And some of them were like prophesying. And they were like, oh no, that's a better way. And then the quote when it says like, if I speak with the tongue of men of angels, it's actually talking about like speaking in tongues, I think. But Paul says to them, you can speak in the tongue of men of angels. You can prophesy. You can perform acts of charity. But if you don't have love, then you have nothing and you gain nothing. He says, these gifts will come to an end. But love never ends. And while we work to create the world that we want, we must do so not just out of love for ourselves and our rights and the things that we want, or even for the rights of those we love and the people who are important to us, who are an extension of ourselves, but out of love for everyone, or we are sounding brass and clanging cymbal. The accident in and of themselves mean nothing without the sentiment behind them. So if we are going to have love, I'm gonna answer the what now, or I'm gonna try. Uh, if we are going to have love for everyone, what does that look like? Because um, I think that runs the risk of sounding sort of like, oh, we should just let everybody be who they are, and I'll be over here doing my thing, you'll be over there doing your thing, and we'll all just get along, and it'll be great. And I think we all know that that's not true. That isn't how that works. So when I say that we should have love for others and recognize their opinions, I am not telling you to let people act and believe however they want. I think, however, there's a difference between, in this case, acceptance and allowance. There's a difference between accepting that people have reasons for what they believe and allowing them to believe and do horrible things. Some people may believe things we think are horrible. I think we all know some people who believe some things that we just can't even fathom. And I think they believe these horrible things out of fear or maybe anger or a million other reasons. But I can't actually believe that most people are horrible. Not really. I don't think 
people are truly bad or anything. So I was thinking about what it really means to love someone. And I think, you know, we get confused, especially in like the 90s self-esteem generation where we can't hurt anybody's feelings ever. You know, we're all gonna jump rope without a jump rope so nobody feels bad that they can't jump rope. That's a thing, <laughs> that happened. Um, but loving someone is not about letting them have whatever they want or being nice all the time. Otherwise, like every single kid in America would be eating candy for breakfast every day. And maybe they are, maybe, I don't know. Um, you should see what my students eat for breakfast. <laughs> But loving, really loving someone is about wanting what's best for them and fighting for what's best for them. And that can be really challenging. So I'm gonna close out by using a personal example of my best friend's father, who some of you may be familiar with. I've kind of talked about him before in a lot of my like, I hate it when people, here's my example of. <laughs> um, so my best friend's father drives me insane. Like, really insane. He makes me so mad that I just, I fume. Like, everything he believes is diametrically opposed to what I believe. And I blocked him from my Facebook feed because his posts were just so upsetting. And I just wanted to argue with him, but I knew that arguing with him wasn't going to go anywhere. So that just made me even more mad, and I couldn't do it. So yeah, blocked him. Um, his beliefs, like, burn every single important part of my soul like the parts that believe in empathy and the parts that want justice and the parts that think we should use like logic and reason. And <laughs> I can think about him like that, you know, as this person who just defies all the things that I hold dear. And it makes me so mad that I can't even like make words. I was trying to think of words to describe like this section. I was just going like, ugh, So I just decided to go with can't make words. But, and, and I can think about him like that. Um, but I can also think about him as the person who installed the safety rail in my parents' shower when my mom was in a car accident. Or the person who taught me like pranks to pull in restaurants when I was a kid. I don't know if you guys have ever like unscrewed the cap on like salt shakers. So I always thought that was really mean because you could like ruin someone's meal. But he taught me this thing where like if it has like the metal cap, you can um, take like a paper napkin and like cover it and then put it back on and no one can see from the outside that there's like a paper napkin blocking it so they'll like shake it and it's like not working and you're like how can this salt shaker like not work like because it's not a it's not like a complicated piece of machinery it's really funny <laughs> i don't do it anymore but middle school was it was fun um or i can think about him as the person he really is which is someone who would never consciously try to hurt me even though if he were to think of me separate from knowing me, he would probably hate me. I represent things that he hates. So when I think about who he is, though, and why he believes what he does, when I translate his behavior, it makes perfect sense to me why he is the way that he is. I can't imagine him being another way. And he doesn't upset me. Like Murgatroyd, he breaks my heart. And I don't want him to feel cut out of our society because I believe that the world that I want is best for him too. I have to believe he can thrive there just like I can. So it's up to me to draw a circle and take him in, just like in the poem from the beginning. And maybe for me that means having difficult conversations that I was trying to avoid. 
and not though like yelling like I believe this, you believe that, we both suck, blah. like actually listening to people, which I think it's really, it's really very difficult to listen to somebody when you're very convinced that you're right, or even if you are right, because I'm usually convinced that I'm right. Um, but just to really recognize the validity of someone who completely disagrees with you is very hard. But I think that's where change really comes from, is not through division, but through empathy and the recognition of our common humanity.